Welcome to the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR, where we talk to business leaders from around Ireland and share their advice on how to create the HR systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, simply visit www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the HR Room podcast. As we've spoken about over the last number of weeks on this podcast, the area of well-being is far-reaching and thankfully is developing hugely over time. Although there has been progress, in practice is workplace well-being truly fit for purpose, accessible and inclusive for all though. We'll talk about this topic today and hopefully answer some of those big questions. We're delighted to be joined by an award-winning business psychologist, keynote speaker, media contributor and well-being specialist who has been interviewed by Vogue, The Guardian and Newsweek is known for expertise on the psychological aspects of the workplace, well-being and intersectionality. And I could go on even more, but we've only got 30 minutes. We're joined by the brilliant Lee Chambers. So thanks for joining us, Lee. How are you? A pleasure to be with you. And yeah, I'm really well, thank you. Brilliant stuff. And as always, we're joined by our very own Mary Cullen, founder and managing director here at Inside HR. How are you, Mary? I'm great. Thanks, Owen. And I was just telling Lee before uh, we started recording how excited I am to have him here. He's really making waves in the UK and uh, our audience, I think, will really get a lot from this podcast. 100%. Brilliant stuff. So let's, let, let's jump right in. And um, so I suppose, Lee, just to kind of set a bit of context, can you talk to us a bit about your, your own experience, your journey? It's quite an important question, I think. And I suppose what drove you to advocate for inclusion, well-being, all that good stuff? Yeah, so from my perspective, it's something I've got lived experience, uh, kind of industry knowledge and a bit of a business journey that's kind of taken me to this point. So I grew up in the UK, uh, I'm black and I'm autistic, so I kind of sit in a place of lesser privilege in those areas. Uh, But I wasn't diagnosed as autistic until I was 36, which was only two years ago. Uh, But kind of throughout my journey, uh, I was the first one in my family's university, uh, which was a privilege, but also an awful lot of pressure. Uh, struggled with my mental health in the middle of my studies, dropped out and came back. Uh, then went out into the corporate world, but the economic crash sent me back home again. Uh, and actually set up my first business, which was in the video game space. Grew that, went on a bit of a journey. Uh, but five years in, uh, my immune system failed. I lost the ability to walk, had to learn to walk again. Uh, had to kind of navigate, you know, living with a chronic illness. And spent a lot of time at home with my children after taking a step back from that business. And, you know, having studied psychology and business within that period and then going, completing a master's, started to realise I really had a passion for how could I empower the health of others? How could I use my own struggles with my mental and physical health as a tool to think about how others might be impacted? Uh, And started to use the fact I'd also run a business previously, seen some of the challenges from the other side, of being a business owner and how that's a challenge as well, but also trying to, how can I look after my teams more effectively? So I had quite a well-rounded appreciation for well-being as a concept uh, academically from a business perspective and went out there looking at what businesses were doing and thought, yeah, they're not doing very much and what they're doing is lacking on effectiveness. They're worried about how they use data. Uh, most don't have any kind of strategy. 
So is it something that I could do to actually make that difference? So I kind of started that journey at the end of 2019 and, you know, didn't know what was going to come on the landscape only a few months later. But over the past three years, you know, we've, we've been gradually growing, making a difference, trying to bring effective well-being and trying to, I suppose, demystify some of the some of the some of the misconceptions and really help businesses see how it can be a significant benefit for their business across a whole variety of different spectrums as well as something that's beneficial to their teams and their employees too. Mm-hmm. So a hugely well I suppose well-rounded experience on it Lee and I'm delighted to hear your, your insights today. I think one of the points you mentioned there in particular and I suppose my from Kind of general discourse, Lee, I think inclusion and well-being don't often go together in the same sentence, really, do they? But let's be honest, they really should. It seems so obvious when, when you do it. Um, just kind of building on one of your initial points there, can you give us an overview of the link between inclusion and well-being from your perspective? It may seem obvious, but at least you get your thoughts on it. Yeah, and I try to I try to not go too uh, in-depth in some ways into this because you know, I could be here for hours. Um, but I think the easiest way to look at it is if we kind of look at, at research and how people operate within kind of organizational ecosystems, if someone is reporting being well, the higher the report on that wellness scale, the more inclusive they behave, the more inclusive they are of others, the more they role model inclusive behaviors. What's really interesting is we look at when people feel like they belong. They also report higher well-being scores. So there's a principal idea that if people are well, they're more likely to include others. And that means that the, those who are included become more well. And as people become more well, they also include more. So it creates like a, a cyclical, you know, reciprocity of them actually benefiting each other. And when we kind of look wider and a bit deeper into that, what we see is that, you know, well-being can be a bit of a privilege itself. If you are in a place where you're more likely to face microaggressions, more likely to face minority stress, more likely to not feel psychologically safe, more likely to have significant barriers and obstacles that others don't, it makes it more challenging to be well. But when those are dismantled, when those are recognised, accepted and addressed, there's a massive feeling of appreciation and value there that, again, boosts overall well-being. And what's been really interesting is, as we've started to dig a bit deeper into what exactly accelerates well-being within an organisation from the benchmark of where they're currently at. And one of the things that's, you know, really been highlighted, and this came out only a few weeks ago as Deloitte, you know, started to release more information about how they've been looking at the future of well-being, is that one one of the probably most important aspects at the minute is a feeling of belonging. Without a feeling of belonging, people are reporting that actually I'm struggling to take the individual aspects of being well and apply them because collectively I don't feel like I'm part of something. And that's making me feel like actually, should I value myself and not feeling part of something, you feel excluded. And obviously that's again where if you are included, you feel like you belong, then there's your platform to start well-being. And in some ways, Sometimes we start with the interventions. That's the ho- that's the roof of the house. We need to actually build the foundations and then build the house first before purchasing a roof. Hundred percent. It's not it's not what you do. It's the way that you do it. The, the classic classic line goes. I suppose similar question to yourself, then, Mary. Um, 
suppose again, look as we said, two topics they've they've hugely developed over time, inclusion, well-being. Um, but Mary, from your perspective, has it been kind of reflected in practice? I know there's some good well-being strategies out there, but are people struggling to keep up, Mary, when it comes to this inclusion aspect of well-being and, and I suppose everything Leah said there? Yeah, well, what Lee's saying makes absolute sense, doesn't it? The you know, your I suppose well-being is complex in a sense. Um, it's not simple and bringing in an individual speaker to talk about mental health or um, nutrition or exercise or uh, inclusion doesn't make for uh, either health and well-being or inclusion. Um, And so it makes absolute sense to me that the two should go together. It it was interesting. I was listening to a a podcast from uh, Brian Crook from the Work Well podcast, and he interviewed um, Kelly Metcalf, um, who's the head of diversity, inclusion and well-being in Fujitsu Europe. She was really interesting because, you know, she she described... um, her role as something which had been mishmashed together in in a way that the organization had decided to put this role together uh, probably to deal with two big areas that they wanted one person to handle rather than two and god knows why uh, that actually came about um but the benefits for the organization have been huge and so she talked about um much the same language as you lee in terms of well you know they're both interrelated and, um, you know, it makes absolute sense for them to be put together. But what I see out there um, falls short of that. And it absolutely resonates um, with me in so many ways, you know, having spent 20 years of my career uh, out there, the world of work and, and, you know, knowing the places and the environments where I felt wanted and appreciated and respected and included and, and how I felt about the people around me at that time. And then having a single experience in one organization where their values and mine didn't meet um and that sense of isolation and separation and all of that was really strong for me at that time um and i i felt more excluded and less involved and less uh you know important in that environment what did i do i worked crazy hours i neglected my health i neglected my family i neglected so many things because of um that sense of not belonging and you know focusing on the wrong things at that point in time that's not a rare story I did leave that organization uh, and went on and was happier and more involved in others but for any grouping um you know whether you're a woman whether you're um you know a, a different race a different color a different sexual orientation whatever it might be again the the possibility of being excluded and as lee says those microaggressions which lots of people don't really understand what that actually even means um but it makes sense that the two come together and um, that you you 
integrate them in the workplace and develop a strategy, which we always talk about. I'm sure people are sick of hearing <laughs> me going on about it. I bang on about it all the time, Lee. But, you know, strategy is important uh, in this area. Yeah. And it really overlays, Mary, with the fact that, you know, marginalized or minoritized groups are quite often told from a generational perspective that they're going to have to work harder to progress. And that in these situations can then play out in a similar way. So it did for you to some people hyper engage and become, you know, you know, overwork effectively to try and validate and to try and get into the group and try and get inclusion. And some people become, you know, like de-engage and they become really detached and then, you know, really struggle to find elements of motivation and satisfaction to drive them on. Uh, both of those usually end, you know, in a negative outcome. Uh, but it, it's, it's such a challenge. And if there's one thing that I'm quite passionate about, Mary, is, is that this is great in principle, but when organisations just say, all right, HR, you're the people people, can you also be the experts in wellbeing? and the experts in inclusion, diversity, and equity. And can you just put them together? Because, you know, you know, because you're, you're, that's probably the most biggest bugbear is that it's incredibly challenging already for HR, managing so many different strands, so many different aspects of a, what can be, you know, a really specialised role, but you're still expected to be generalist and know everything. Uh, managing organisational communication, managing employees, being that conduit between the two. And then someone comes to you and says, oh, culture, that's all your job as well. Uh, and I'm quite passionate about how yeah. we get that, you know, an organization and ecosystem can't just be HR's responsibility. It's a firm-wide responsibility. And I'm, you know, big on promoting that as well. And definitely. And when, I suppose when it comes to those strategies, Lee, then is that one of the things that's missing? I suppose, given these topics, areas of business, their due attention, and also, as you said earlier, building from the ground up, what's missing with current well-being strategies, I suppose, is the question. Um, so for me, it's an ability to look across the two. I mean, quite often you'll speak to businesses about this and you don't necessarily know what you don't know. And it's not about kind of apportioning blame. And sometimes these strategies are, you know, <laughs> I've spoken to enough HRDs to know that sometimes they're writing that strategy at like 11 o'clock at night because <laughs> it's the only space you've got to do it. And it's like, I, I would like to role model good well-being while I write this strategy, but actually... <laughs> I'm just having to get it done. Um, but it's a consideration for where responsibilities lie. That's one of the most important parts of any strategy is to actually ensure that responsibilities are clear for the wider well-being and inclusion piece. Because when those responsibilities are built into a strategy, it makes it clear who's accountable for progressing certain aspects. It makes it clear what senior leadership is responsible for, what HR is responsible for, what health and safety or occupational health is, what managers themselves are responsible for. And it gives that clarity on what employees are also responsible for. So it doesn't just fall to one department or one set of people, but it creates a clear scope of who's responsible. And also, you know, that strategy allows the monitoring, the evaluation, the planning and the pathways to start to look, is our well-being a bit one-dimensional? Is it missing across the different pillars of well-being? More importantly, it starts to give you a chance to take a step back and look at who's engaging. What's the accessibility like? Is there a level of variety, but not so much it becomes overwhelming? Uh, and then a consideration, I suppose, for it, how inclusive is it from a wider perspective? And 
you know, as we start to look at the look at the bigger picture, if you are able to kind of see the impact and look at the the psychosocial risks, it gives you some clarity on well, you might need some culturally sensitive, you know, interventions further up the chain, but you need to actually take a step back and look at the data that you have, the information that you've got available, and look at that benchmark point to be able to actually see what you might need to you know, evolve, change, or bring in in the future. And it's important to kind of take that step back, and a strategy gives you that point. And even a strategy within itself kind of needs a strategy on how it can be executed and evolved. Um, and I know, you know we, 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 we all love strategy, and some people are like, oh, more strategy. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, I think it's so important from that point because it allows us to start to appreciate some of the other factors, the economic, the social, the environmental, how they play out for different communities. Uh, helps us to see the underlying factors and you know be able to see what, what's causing some of the challenges. And once we identify those, you can target interventions and you can you know keep that overall focus on prevention rather than just trying to fight fires at the at the top end uh, mm-hmm. and wondering why why things just keep you know combusting <laughs> within the organization on a regular basis definitely i suppose kind of similar question to yourself then mary i suppose it's that deeper analysis piece is, is so key to it not just for i suppose ensuring that you're hitting all the right places and all the right people at the, the time you're building the strategy but also implementing it over time so it's continuously improving you're growing it adapting it if it if certain parts aren't accessible you can make fixes all that kind of stuff but i suppose mary if you don't listen to your Staff, I think, I suppose some of the people who don't feel included, don't feel a sense of well-being, they're going to find it even harder to speak up. So you really do need to embed that into your strategy. How do we listen to everyone, not just those who are well and included, Mary? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I think we've focused a lot uh, on, I suppose, minority groups throughout the years that we've had the podcast running. We've uh, looked at barriers to entry in organizations. We talked to Eben Joseph uh, about, you know, if we only survey people who are actually the same as us, uh, but we've blocked minority groups from entering an organization, well, then actually that whole inclusion piece really it's very questionable. And so many HR people I talk to talk about these great systems they have and and these American surveys that are auto-generated that they send out to their people uh, that give them great stats on their inclusion and and their diversity and their well-being and all of that. But again, I always have a question mark about the tools that we use and um, what we're actually trying to achieve when we're in HR. Lee, when you talk about HR people um, being tasked with so many different things. In some ways, I see HR people jump on bandwagons too. So they jump on a bandwagon without the expertise, um, uh, without the training, without the education, without even sometimes the full awareness and, you know, try to develop programs as opposed to strategy. Um, But well-being starts with your leadership too, because if I believe that everybody should work a 60 or 70 hour a week and I'm a leader 
And I believe that fundamentally. And I believe fundamentally that uh, work is more important than family and more important than people's activities outside of work. Well, then I will model that, won't I, in everything that I do in that organization. And I think really for serious about well-being, um, if we're serious about inclusion, we look at things that might be uncomfortable from a leadership perspective. Are we under-resourced? Do we know we're under-resourced and we deliberately uh, allow our people to work crazy hours, even if it's at just certain times of the year? Are we deliberately doing that? Do we know that we're asking people to work till midnight? If we're talking about developing a well-being strategy, um, or an inclusion strategy at midnight, what are we actually doing? Um, and I have a real question mark over that. As HR leaders, we have to look after our own well-being and there's a responsibility in that in itself. And if you are working crazy hours, if you don't have time for your own family, if you don't have time for fitness and nutrition, if you're microwaving your meal at 11 o'clock at night, honestly, are you in a position to talk about wellness? Are you in a position to implement strategy uh, or devise it and implement it? Well, I have a question mark over it. And so I think it the honesty of discussion, the truthfulness and reality for people working in our organization uh, it needs to be really looked at. And who isn't there? Who have we prevented entering the organization in the first place? Um, and I think if you looked at that in any real sense, our strategies would be a whole lot different in, in real terms. So again, I'm not blaming, I'm not blaming uh, leaders, I'm not blaming individuals or individual HR people I shout out to you all the time. You work hard. I know you do. Um, but let's be honest about our organizations. And if we really want to make a difference here, we there's lots of things for us to think about. Mm -hmm, definitely. I suppose a lot of it, Lee, is kind of about, I suppose, really difficult conversations, isn't it? Whether it's having frank and honest conversations with yourself about your own well-being practices, your own well-being routine, I suppose, as Mary mentioned there, but also having conversations about things we may know nothing about, particularly when it comes to things like allyship, Lee. So I suppose there's an element of kind of stepping out of the comfort zone for most people when it really comes to talking about actual well-being, actual inclusion, Lee, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. And I've kind of found, you know, as having to sit senior leadership teams down and asking them those uncomfortable questions and being the awkward one in the room and kind of saying that, you know, we, we, we're talking about well-being you're making this lovely employee value proposition about all these amazing things that you do. The workloads aren't realistic here. Like, that's your foundational, foundational bricks, and they're not in place. Like, for all this wonderful stuff that you do, roles aren't clear. So people are, you know, stepping on each other's toes, they're duplicating work, the processes aren't clear. You know, it's creating additional workload, which is then creating unrealistic workloads for your team. You know, people don't have clear progression pathways. People don't have a, you know, a, a vision of where they're going. People, you know, because we, again, we do a lot of employee voice work and that really kind of gets down. You hear the things that come across over and over again. 
Sometimes it's management consistency, capacity and capability. Sometimes it's things around, you know, just general reward and recognition lacking. Sometimes it's around workloads being unrealistic. Sometimes it's about roles not being clear. Sometimes it's about feeling like there's there's a set of values that have been preached but not lived. Um, and all these kind of disconnections are those foundational aspects of a place where people feel like they can belong and people feel like they can be well. And those are, those are you know, probing, challenging discussions that I have on a regular basis because at the end of the day, you know, I, I run a company that looks at both of these aspects and the quality of our work is ultimately the outcomes that we can achieve. And, you know, we have to really kind of pull at those hamstrings before we even start to implement things because, again, you can't build a house when there's no foundations there. And, you know, that kind of work, uh, you know, quite often, you know, it makes the HR team's job a lot easier when leadership has been a little bit grilled, but also now starts to see why they're doing it properly and how they have to role model that. Because if they're not bought in, you know, again, you're working against a whole lot of resistance. And, you know, everyone in an organization, most people have ambitions. Most people look to leadership. What's tolerated will be amplified. What is, you know, visually role modeled will be copied. And sometimes the biggest challenge is what is praised gets done an awful lot. And there are still places where people are praised for being the last one out of the office. There are still people who are praised for getting the client across the line, you know, before feeding themselves or the children. Um, And any of these things where that praise is still continual will be the biggest challenge because it's not just a barrier. Every bit of praise is another brick on top of that thing that we have to climb over. So it's kind of part behavioral, (laughs) part strategic and part challenging. And I think that anything that is worthwhile is actually challenging in the workplace. And we are kind of reforming the ways that things have been. And for any company that's innovative and truly says that they are, they are innovative, they need to not be resistant to that change. They need to appreciate how, you know, well-being and inclusion are seen as quite immature, young concepts. But actually, they're both universal to humans. <laughs> And actually, we need to look how that applies in a place where people spend a lot of time. And if there's one thing that I always kind of, you know, hold deep down as a belief is that work should be a net positive for everyone. And there are going to be tough days. There are going to be challenges to overcome, problems to be solved. But work can be regenerative to people. It doesn't need to be this thing which is seen as always reductive and taken away. But sometimes well-being is reductive. It's not about adding new initiatives. It's about what you can edit, what you can take away, where you can remove resistance, where you can create efficiencies too. That's another thing that I see. We do all this, we do all this, we do all this, we do all this. Stop. Let's look at what we can take away before we start adding more stuff. Mm -hmm. When they come with the lovely menu of initiatives that they're going to bring. 100%. 100%. I think, Lee, I think a huge thing that jumped out to me there was the, the whole idea of that, look, we have all these big concepts around well-being, but there are certain concepts that we, we may ignore, I suppose. There's one conversation that we do see a little bit about, Lee. It's about workplaces and workspaces, and particularly when it comes to 
neurodiversity, accessibility, all those kind of things, the workplace and workspace can have a huge effect. So I suppose, can I get some of your thoughts, Lee, before we jump into the last couple of questions, I suppose, just your thoughts about the kind of workplace, workspace, that kind of role um, in, in, inclusive, in inclusion and well-being? Yeah, and again, they both sit quite interestingly in a similar place. We look at like environmental factors and environmental stresses, you know, ventilation, thermal comfort, acoustics, lighting. These things can have a massive impact on people, but <laughs> people are kind of told where to sit in an office space, right? And a lot of people, you know, who might be working flexibly and you know, are working from a domestic area, which wasn't designed to work from. And, you know, we presented with these challenges where our environment plays a significant role in how we feel, plays a role in how we're included, and actually plays a role in where we feel like we belong. And it's been a really interesting kind of evolution as we all know, you know, when the pandemic hit, companies just had to make it happen. If the pandemic hadn't have hit, we'd have probably been through a two-year strategic process to start to consider how we get people to work flexibly from home with, you know, a technological runway and, you know, all these considerations for how we gradually create a policy that is flexible enough to allow people to be able to do that. Um, but ultimately, you know, those environmental stresses, they do play a role in how people feel overall. And if you're in, you know, a poorly ventilated building, we all kind of know the impact that can have both physically, psychologically and emotionally on people. If, you know, when we know like the, the thermal comfort wars, when we've got individuals, you know, switching the thermostat because we all have different levels of thermal comfort, but that then plays out into areas of inclusion, such as the health inequalities of menopause and, you know, struggles with thermal regulation during menopause for some individuals who suffer significantly with those symptoms and actually the flexibility of being able to, you know, create the, the, a level of thermal comfort for them is really important. We kind of look at inclusion when people are working in remote teams. It can become more challenging in some ways because there has to be really intentional efforts to bring people together to make those connections because what we find is in remote environments, people do gradually, in a similar way, navigate towards people who are similar to them because there's comfort in that. Um, and we've got to try and create a world where we embrace the differences, celebrate the differences and bring people together to do great things that's where those collaborative aspects really come in. And to foster collaboration, we need to be more inclusive. <laughs> so it all kind of feeds into that wider picture, but even down to the inclusion aspects around things such as neurodiversity, where the space that you're in and you know things such as open offices are a real challenge for a lot of neurodivergent individuals because of the sheer amount of sensory inputs that they can have. And, you know, an ability to make accommodations, maybe having noise cancelling headphones, maybe being able to work somewhere where the lighting is less. Um, but again, companies are only just starting to appreciate that because before it used to be, right, you know, a new starter, go and sit there with your team. That's where you sat. You know, that's your desk. Maybe now, you know, some companies work hot desking. There's, there's so many different things. But what I will say is, I think most companies are still finding the way with things. And it's probably going to be another few years until things find some semblance of balance and we find this new way of working. Uh, but again, it's about thinking, you know, people are sedentary for hours at the desk. It's never great for well-being. We've got to try and find ways to create those opportunities to move. Uh, and even being able to, you know, 
connect with nature. That's something that a lot of people found during during the pandemic was really powerful. But how can they bring that in, into office spaces now, into indoors, through biophilic design, through ensuring that, you know, the office spaces we have for the future are both, you know, good, because human-made spaces are not traditionally great for well-being, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, but even newer buildings still have challenges because there's always an economic cost and a consideration for all those design aspects. But the world's changing. And, you know, I think well-being and inclusion needs to be built in as part of that change. 100%. And I suppose same question to yourself, Mary. I know we've kind of had a couple of offline chats about our, our thoughts on the workplace, the workspace. Um, but as Lee kind of alluded to there, it, it, it's, uh, it's literally, you're literally building the space for well-being, for inclusion, for everything else, Mary, aren't you? So there, it is an important thing to, to consider, Mary, isn't it? Without a doubt. And, you know, I find it really interesting, you know, the the change that's kind of coming from Silicon Valley in the US in terms of maybe this hybrid stuff doesn't really work. And, you know, maybe we bring people back to the office more and you, you see that kind of mood starting to creep in a little. I, I think always it's um, that intentionality piece is really important. You know, what are we doing? Why are we asking people to come into offices? And when they come in, what is their experience? Um, and for many people, coming into the office actually is adding stress and strain to their day. And you have to be cognizant of that in terms of your um, one request to get people into the office. Why are we bringing people in? What's the purpose of it? Um, if we're bringing people in to sit at their desk in the hope that they collaborate with somebody, but we're not intentional about that, then that's not very productive if somebody could do that from their home but they've added a, an hour's commute both ways to their day they've had stress and strain getting children out to school and crashes or or whatever they're missing their morning or evening uh, leisure time or uh, physical activities what are we actually doing and that question I've been asking all the way um, through the pandemic when restrictions were lifted. Why are we asking people to come back into the office? In an ideal world, every organisation is going to have a budget to create wonderful rooftop gardens and uh, spaces where people can meet and collaborate and be together. Let's be real. There are many, many organizations, many SMEs uh, and many micro organizations that simply cannot afford to make those kind of investments. And the reality then for many people traveling into the workplace is they are coming into a traditional open plan office or a building that was designed 10, 15, 20 years ago, maybe even three years ago that isn't fit for purpose anymore. And they are finding themselves coming into the office, meeting people, yes, of course, um, but still on back-to-back -back calls without the organization having ever really considered that when we had meetings in the past, um, we were moving from meeting room to meeting room or place to place, building to building, 
you know, uh, out to a hotel or a restaurant or somewhere like that. And now we have people so scheduled uh, in back-to-back -back video calls that where's the time to actually interact and collaborate? And unless you're intentional, what you're doing is you're actually saying to people, come into the office in the hope you'll meet someone and collaborate, maybe have this water cooler moment or canteen moment or car park moment where you're going to come up with brilliant ideas together. And, you know, hey presto, there we are collaborating and having magic moments. That's just simply a fallacy. It isn't true. Uh, it may be in those organizations where they've got the budget, where they've redesigned the office space, where they really thought this through and where they're intentional about well-being, inclusion and general strategy. Um, but it's not true for the vast majority of people. And, and it's one of the frustrations I hear a lot um, with the organizations. When I, when I go and speak to employees as part of employee voice projects that we might be doing. Um, and it's always the same thing, you know, back to back meetings, overworked, long hours, lack of time for me, lack of time for family, lack of time for life and social activities. Um, I'm being dragged into the office. There's a commute that I've, I have to take two buses and, and walk half a mile in the elements. And I'm not happy. Mm -hmm. and there's no prize for guessing what effect that has on well-being at all, 100%. Yeah. So, so I suppose the kind of final question to yourselves, to both of you, and I'll come straight back to yourself, Mary, for this one, I suppose, as we always say, HR teams, um, professionals, leaders are listening to this po uh, podcast looking for a bit of advice. So I suppose any kind of final words of advice for HR, HR teams, organizations, professionals who do want to kind of ensure that their well-being strategy is truly inclusive, I suppose, a, a quick little summary of, of what we've spoken about. Well, employee voice is always important. I don't think you can build a strategy unless you understand your people, your demographic. Um, again, from an inclusion perspective, who isn't getting into the organization? What's our um, sourcing strategy? What's our selection strategy? Uh, what is our candidate experience? Unless we're measuring that, we can't know who isn't making it through our processes. So I think that's important. And then leadership and, and management. So, you know, as Lee rightly says, it, part of what he's doing is going in there and challenging um, the leadership team and getting the leadership team to think about well-being and inclusion um, and really look at it from that perspective. And then you once, even once that's done, then you've got the management layer. You've got to train management to pick up on um, issues around mental health, to understand if somebody's struggling because of their family or parenting commitments, uh, understand um, the differences between people uh, and not having that one size fits all approach that all organizations, I guess, have traditionally done until we've hit this, you know, pandemic, that moment of change in which we've uh, embraced something different, not by choice, as Lee says, it would have taken us many years to get here uh, to where we are right now. Um, but, you know, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. 
what is the future of work going to look like in our organizational uh, organization and how intentional are we about it um, and understanding who we are as a starting point is really important. Mm-hmm. 100% and I suppose the same question to yourself Leanne kind of final guidance or advice for, for some of our listeners on getting this getting this right. Yeah, well, it's challenging to follow that, Mary. You've taken all my points. Um, so again, <laughs> Sorry, I, Lee. <laughs> very much in agreement about kind of look look very intentionally. And, and just thinking back to the start of this episode, just a consideration that well-being and inclusion are interconnected. They are reciprocal. Um, don't look at the challenges that you have in these issues in isolation. They are part of an ecosystem. And actually, if you can take a little bit of that systems thinking, I know sometimes that can be a little bit of a challenge for people who consider themselves people people, but sometimes we lose sight of the fact that, you know, an organization is an ecosystem and a little bit of systems thinking, a little bit of taking a step back and seeing where things interconnect and where challenges are coming from a similar source uh, does allow us to be able to dig that little bit deeper and think about, you know, what can we address upstream that might actually be something that makes a significant difference to our organization and by identifying that and being able to start to see how you can mitigate some of those risks all this work actually becomes and feels a bit more seamless and a bit easier and also for you as a department will also manage to you know make some of the other challenges that you have also become less potent so it's kind of part of a building process and so often HR are literally digging those foundations we see you and we appreciate you. Um, but yeah, definitely try and look at things a bit more systemically. Make sure that your strategies, just take a, a browse over them and think about how inclusion can actually sit within that. Uh, sometimes the best thing to do is, is look at your strategy and just see how inclusive it might be if you were to take it through different personas within an organisation. Uh, and finally, like Mary said, intentionality is vital. An employee voice, you know, those that are willing to voice, create those psychologically safe spaces, maybe even use someone external because you get another layer usually if it's someone who they feel they can open up to a little bit more because it is external. Uh, But yeah, more than ever, just create those spaces, get that qualitative information and use that to build some great foundations for moving forward. Definitely, and the importance of different perspectives is, is important in, I suppose, so many different fields and areas but for this topic in particular it is hugely important so look thank you Mary and Lee for both your perspectives on this topic really enjoyable insightful discussion I'm glad we we got through so much actually in the time because there is so much to talk about on this topic so really appreciate your time Lee and Mary thank you everyone for listening we'll catch you next week for the next installment of our podcast so don't forget to click subscribe and join the discussion on our social media channels and as always for HR consultancy services and management you can trust get in touch with us today at insidehr.ie thank you Mary and thank you Lee Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, like and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR.
whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see you soon.